Hello and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito with Marilu Nemechek and we are uh, going to speak to you in this show, maybe the not, not next show, about a topic that you all may have, if you regular churchgoers, if you are, you may have been seeing in your bulletins, in your church bulletins, maybe you may have seen these in other publications, maybe your diocesan newspaper. Uh, you may have heard Father refer to something called Eucharistic revival from the pulpit. And so you might say, what the heck is that, right? I mean, what is Eucharistic revival? Um, the, the purpose of the next couple of shows is to kind of flesh out a little bit what the Eucharist is and why should we care enough really to have what is known as a, what, a Eucharistic revival. First of all, I thought the word was interesting. You know, the title, when I first saw Eucharistic Revival last year in publications that were starting to come out, I was like, oh, yeah, we need revival. But I think that you and I, Mary Lou, may have a different understanding than most Catholics of the word revival. What do you think? Very well could be. Um, it is an interesting word. Um, and I guess if it pertains to the church, it would be a reawakening of something that's already present in the church that people may have um, not forgotten about, but they're just not as conscious of it and of its importance in their uh, faith life, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the word revival means like a restoration to life, period. I mean, that's really what it means. So, And I think you and I, I think we all could use revival, I think, every day. <laughs> We yeah. Use yeah. A little revival. I've been praying for revival in this area for a very, very long time. Thirty-five years at least. And this is a three-year revival. It's not as if it's going to be a month or two and then we're done. Mm -hmm. So this is a big deal in the church. Pretty much. Look. The, and what I'm going to be speaking about when we when I give this talk is going to be something like, look. Who are the people who really understand the Eucharist? The people who really understand and desire the Eucharist are the ones who are converted. Yes. How are they converted? They've had a moment. They've had a season. They've had... An encounter. A, an encounter, exactly. Those are the words used by Pope Francis. They've had an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, whereby they want to deepen their knowledge of the Eucharist, and they really want to apply the benefits and the virtues of the Eucharist to their lives, right? Right. But... Um, I, I forgot what the what the uh, organization was, but there's been um, statistics out there that have stated very clearly that seven in ten Catholics believe that the Eucharist is only a symbol. And it's it's shocking to me. Is the Mary Lou is the Eucharist only a symbol? No, it is not. Okay, it is and not. Is this something you've just learned? No, this is what I've always believed in. Is this something you always were taught? Yes, okay. With, without exception. Okay, so why do you think, why do you think 7 out of 10, well, U.S. Catholics, believe that they do not believe in the, what we call the real presence, and we're going to unpack what that means? You know, perhaps they, they just haven't been taught well. Or they've gotten lazy in their faith. Let's put it that way. There's been a lot of changes in the church, and I think perhaps it's just kind 
kind of gotten lost um, along the way. But it certainly is important, and, and um, you know, when you think about the Holy Mass and the Eucharist, which is the essence of the Mass, I, I'm always reminded of what St. Padre Pio says, is that it would be easier for the world to exist without the Son than without the Holy Mass. That's how important the Eucharist is in the Mass. I mean, we can't survive without it. There's no church without it. Nothing makes sense without it. That's right. And I'm sure you're going to cover all of this in, in your upcoming talk at Christ the King, which is actually going to be coming up next week, May 18th, from 7 till 9 p.m. If anyone is listening and is available to come, please come. It will be recorded, too, so, I mean, it will be available eventually, uh, digitally and on CD or DVD or whatever, um, streaming, etc., so I guess I'm trying to approach this from like the point of view of somebody coming in from Mars, you know, or coming in from a different from a different religion, maybe a non-Christian religion. And what is the big deal about this Eucharist? About about, and when I refer to Eucharist, of course, I'm referring to what we call Holy Communion, right? So it's right. the reception under the form of bread and wine mm-hmm. of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. We're following biblical tradition, right? Right. outlined in the scriptures and the gospels and in Paul about the institution of the feast of thanksgiving which is what Jesus called it right eucharisteo in greek means thanksgiving thanksgiving mm-hmm. i and i was also trying to trying to grasp a little bit about why we lost this sense of the sacred and why we lost the sense of the eucharist even growing up in europe which has really become much more secular i think than the united states at least outwardly and at least Italy, where I grew up, I remember going to Mass, and you went early, and you you went late, and you stayed, and then you left early, you know? And then everybody mm-hmm. stood in the back, and the men, if they were present, would stand in the back, or perhaps they would sit in a pew, but nobody really would go up for communion. The people going up for communion would be the extra pious people, the old people, and children. But I remember very clearly, it was most people who, who let's see, Less people went up than were sitting in the pews. Whereas in the United States, you have this phenomenon where the whole pew goes up. But I remember people sitting out. Oh, yeah. They would go to Mass, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they would sit out communion. And in a certain sense, it really conveyed that idea that I know that this is something important. And I know that right now I'm not in a state of grace. You know? and, And also growing up, when I was growing up, the fasting was different. So you fasted from midnight before receiving the Holy Eucharist. So if, in fact, for some reason you broke that, you, you could not receive communion at Mass. Right. And the same with, you know, if you hadn't been to confession, you wouldn't be going to communion. I mean, exactly. it was something that you did regularly. Instead, in our day, we've seen, what, long lines for communion, but very short lines, short lines for the Eucharist. Short. So it's been flipped out, right? Yeah. But I think even... Even in my youth in in Italy, you had a you most people had a rudimentary yet healthy understanding that here in the Eucharist was something that was out of this world that needed to be treated with respect. Whereas instead, instead what I'm perceiving in the past however many decades, especially in the American church, yes, church attendance is great. I mean, compared to Europe, church attendance in the United States is crazy. It's like off the chain. Right? Everybody goes. You saw the first time I saw men in church. 
on a regular basis was when I came to the United States. That's sad. You know? That's sad. I mean, I was like, whoa, this is really cool. But then I realized that it's more of a cultural phenomenon and that a lot of people have this sense that they are entitled to receive communion for showing up. Exactly. Just because I, I think that's true. I show up and, you know, who are you to say I can't, you know, that it gets into who do you, who do you think you are? And then you get into the whole discussion of, you know, proper reception, worthy reception, etc. But that's, I don't want to get into that right now. What I want to get into is how does one balance the need for the bread of life with a proper awe? So everybody needs communion, right? The Pope calls it the, what, the medicine of immortality. The church is a field hospital right. for the sick, right? Right. And the sick need it, right? So sinners need it. And we're all sinners, right? But... It also needs to be received in a proper mode, right? It needs to be received in a state of grace. So how do you convey that need to be to receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, right? Right. That's been very important. So for many Americans, the sacrament of the Eucharist has become an it and not a who. An it and not a who. And I take that from the introduction of the bishop's document on Eucharistic revival. That so, for many people, the sacrament has become an it and not a who. So it's become more cultural than spiritual, in a sense, or more secular than spiritual, in a sense. It's so, participating, but not really um, participating on a more spiritual level. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. It's more of a habit. And, and, you, and Mary Lou, you know, you know me. You know me. I'm always... I want to reach people where they are. I'm, I don't want to reach people where I believe they should be because oftentimes people aren't, aren't where there. they should be, right? Yeah. And Jesus was, uh, was brilliant. He was a genius at reaching people exactly where they were and not making any demands of them that they were not able to give un until they were converted and they knew him and they had an encounter with him. And then he wanted everything. But until you have the encounter with the Lord, until you have been... You have been, you had that converting experience where you know him personally. Until you cultivate that daily through prayer and reception sacraments, you're not going to know what we're talking about. Or if you participate in adoration, which is, I think, a great help for people. Um, if that's something that you're drawn to, you want to receive communion, the Holy Eucharist, more and more and more because you know you can't survive without it. Absolutely. I mean, but already that's an advanced state. I right, right. Wanting to go to adoration or even having access to an adoration chapel is not the normal, and it's that's too bad because it should be. It's just tragic. It's not the normal default state for most Catholics, right? Most no. Catholics do not have access to a, an adoration chapel. And even when they do have access to an adoration chapel, they're not really clear about what, what why they should do what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So we need to reach people in their pre-converted state, in their unconverted state. Because in the end, the church's deepest identity, and this will be the last prong of the Eucharistic revival formulated by the bishops, is mission. The church's deepest identity is to go track down the people who are living in pits of despair, of hopelessness, to tell them the good news, to, to open them up to the wind of the Holy Spirit, and then just to step back. And once the lights are on, once the doors are open, once the Holy Spirit is blowing in the soul of that, of that person, 
then they will know, they will care, they will seek, they will want to know more about the Eucharist. So I guess what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way is that um, the Eucharistic crisis that we encounter in the church today is really just a symptom of a crisis of conversion, right? Right. It's a crisis of conversion. So you speak about the priest abuse scandal. The priest abuse scandal is a crisis of conversion. The catechetical lacks are crisis of conversion, right? Um, basically, point, uh, you know, the guy, I don't know, the guy stealing from the Vatican Bank in Rome and all the, the financial scandals, those are crises of conversion. Those are people who are not converted. So how do we hold people to a standard that they don't even know what it is and why they should, why they should care? Which, again, is kind of a, a big-picture way of saying that the only way that we're going to get through this message of Eucharistic revival is if first we foster conversion. It's, it's the ingredient that's necessary for everything else and to be open. And, I, I, and there is hope. Because I, I was just a sponsor for someone coming into the church who received her first Holy Communion this past Saturday, and she was so moved to tears. I mean, it was just wonderful because she has had that encounter. She was preparing for this encounter. And when she finally had that encounter of receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, it changed her. Mm -hmm. she's, she's a new person. She's open. So how do, we, how do we get everybody to that spot? Well, it's an ongoing work. It's, she's experienced the beginning, but she's going to have to hang in there and oh, yeah. mature and grow, right? Oh, I have all sorts of mentors for her. I said, Good. once you come into the church, this is where you're, you're really going to dig in and learn. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, yes, this is an ongoing thing, mm -hmm. which a number of us are going to personally participate in it with her. Well, and it's, I, I might say it's, it's ongoing for all of us. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody is finished. Everybody's on their way, but they need to have that, that, in, that initial encounter whereby the doors and windows are open where the Holy Spirit comes in. And then at that point, then we're striving for holiness and we're striving to understand more about the Eucharist and we're striving to understand more about the moral life and we're striving to understand more about politics, you know, that kind of stuff. But, the, but, but we have to remember that catechesis cannot precede evangelization. You can talk to people till you're blue in the face about how important the Eucharist is, but if they're not converted, they're not going to care. If they end up doing what you're asking them to do, they're going to do it because they want to please you, because somebody made them to, because they think, they think it might be the right thing to do, but they don't really know. We, you know, another problem is they're, they're not around people that have had that encounter. Because if you're around people that have had that encounter, you look at them and you say, I don't know what you have, but I want it. Exactly. And that's how the early church spread. The early church spread through bonds of friendship, not through stadium rallies or even inviting people to Mass. The early church spread through word of mouth and through examples and through friendships and families, you know, through contagion. Yes. Like you said, you know? Yeah. Another thing I'd like to say is this. Revival is not a program. Okay? Revival is not an institutional work. It can never be an institutional work. By its very nature, revival is the blowing spirit of God that goes wherever he will, blows stuff up, startles people, stuns them. Uh, John Paul II used 
a word about the coming of the Holy Spirit, it was like something like, the Holy Spirit stuns us. You know? It's like all of a sudden you're like, wait, I didn't, you know. The, every, all of a sudden things become clear, and that's what we're calling upon. So we're going to try and talk about the, the biblical roots of the Eucharist. We're going to try and talk about tradition and church teaching. And then the third prong is what do we do about it? Because, you know, we could stay here till the cows come home, you know, talking about scholarly stuff. But in the end, what do we do about this? And in the end, it's what you and I have been about forever and ever, which is uh, preaching the word, uh, bringing the Holy Spirit into play, and then getting out of the way, you know? Exactly. Equipping the saints, and that's it. So what are the, the, the bit, let, let me see if I, yeah, I have about three or four minutes before we start, stop the show, and then I'll continue on the other side. What are the Old Testament roots of the Eucharist? You know, mm -hmm. the sacrifice of bread and wine. Manna. Or, but going further back, what, okay. where do we see the idea of sacrifice? And why, why do mm -hmm. the earliest records, not only in the scriptures, but also anthropological records from cultural, you know, the earliest records always show evidence of altars, sacrifices, and priests. Whether it's Marduk in Babylon, whether it's the shamans in, in uh, you know, the Inca culture, you know, there's always been this need, even going back 10, 20, 30,000 years ago, mm -hmm. of a need for blood sacrifice. Because what's blood? Blood is the life principle, life, right? So the yeah. idea is that anytime there's a lack or there's a problem or there's a sin, a perceived sin, whether it's societal or personal, there's a need to go back to nature and offer sacrifice to appease, to propitiate, to atone, you know, whatever. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the case of the ancient gods, of the bloodthirsty gods of Palestine, for instance, Molech and Ammon and all those guys, it's like they're upset and they're, you know, we've done something wrong, we don't know what it is, they're withholding the, the crops, so we have to sacrifice some babies, you know, at, at, a, at a very sort of basic level. And there's always been this understanding that that lack or sin or fault needs to be atoned according to nature. So where are the earliest sacrifices? Cain and Abel. Right. That's like straight out of the gate, the book of Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. So Cain offers according to his flocks, so animals, and Abel offers according to the crops because he was an agriculturalist. So already we see this need for blood sacrifice. And we have this idea developed in the scriptures, and then you were you referred to Moses, and you referred to Abraham. Yes. And remember who offered bread and wine to Abraham? The priest king of Salem, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, right? yeah. So we have that early, very early, early understanding of sacrifices of bread and wine representing a covenantal understanding, right? An, an, an understanding of, of combining two people in a kinship relationship who perhaps were not related before. Even in, the, in Moses, so I'm going for, further into the four books of Moses, in Exodus, you have the description of what was going to go into the tabernacle, right? So you had the right. Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. You also had what? You Manna. had a table mm -hmm. with the, quote, showbread, or right. the table of the bread. 
It was known as the bread of the presence, but in Hebrew, it's called the bread of the face. It was bread that represented the presence of God in the tabernacle, in that understanding, right? And then, of course, with Moses, we have what? Like you said, the manna, right? Mm -hmm. It's the bread from heaven that God furnishes to his people, right? So that's very sort of rudimentary understanding. Remember, also in Moses, we have what? We have this understanding of a lamb that is sacrificed, right? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. The Passover? Right. The lamb is sacrificed, and what do they do with the blood? Of the lamb, the sacrifice, remember? They put it on the doorpost. It's brushed on the lintels on the doorposts mm -hmm. of the houses of the people of Israel. Why? Because when the angel of death yes. visits the land of Egypt, what's going to happen? The, sons the would angel die. will pass over, mm -hmm. or Pesach, which mm -hmm. is the root word of Passover. the word Pesach, will pass over the houses that are painted with the blood of the lamb. So, and those see, that didn't have it, then got whacked, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. So that's just, just, a, just a teaser. We're going to continue this conversation in our next show. Thanks for joining us.